In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, what a beautiful morning, afternoon, or evening, depending where you are. I'm so thankful you have a moment to spend time with me and one of my favorite people to talk to, Dr. David Solomon. For those who may not be aware, Dave, David, would you be so kind as to please reintroduce yourself to those who may be listening for the first time? Sure, George. Thanks for having me back. I'm always good to, to be with you. Um, I am uh, been in higher ed for my pretty much my entire career, and um, professor of medieval literature, religion, and culture for uh, almost 30 years, and um, then came to Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, six years ago to open up the Office of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity, of which I am currently the director. It's so fitting for so many reasons, I, especially on today's topic of creativity, there is just this spark of the divine. And when we talk about the divine, I think we should mention your book on the seven deadly sins, which you've recently written, which is its own way, has its own divine nature. For those who are listening, the book is called The Seven Deadly Sins. Check it out. But we're talking about creativity today. And it's almost like there's a spark of the divine. When I say creativity, what do you think of, Dr. Solomon? Uh, that's interesting. an interesting question. Um, what do I think of? I mean, I, I think of the the various avenues that you can take to be quote unquote creative and the ways in which we largely today now have collapsed those and really said, well, really everything is creative. It makes me wonder, you know, when, when I think of creativity, sometimes it seems to me, that it stems from difficult times. I think there was a great quote that said, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who said, 
we must jump off the cliffs and find a way to fly. I butchered the quote, but it's something along the lines of creativity comes from finding yourself jumping off of places yeah. where you're backed up against the wall. Is that where, is that an well, idea cre of where creativity comes yeah, from? Creativity has to, I think, involve a little bit of danger um, yeah. and risk-taking, right? I mean, the most creative uh, minds in history have been risk-takers, whether we're thinking about Leonardo da Vinci or, uh, you know, Picasso or or even folks uh, hurts me to say this, but folks folks like Elon Musk, um, who you know are are somehow being creative and it involves taking something of a risk, and um, that can be a pretty scary thing to do, um, because of course the risk, the possibility of the risk is I mean you know using Vonnegut's analogy you could you could die, right I mean if you jump off the cliff. But you really do have to do that. And, and I mean, I, I often encourage students, even in their writing, I say, you know, before you can, I even say, I even use that Vonnegut thing, I say, before you can um, fly, you have to get out on the ledge, right? I mean, you, you got to be willing to take a risk. Yeah. And it seems to me like that's another reason why, you know, the person that is creative or a work that is creative seems so attractive to us. It's almost like we can see that risk in there. We can see that. Yeah. Someone had taken that risk and it draws us in. Yeah, when, when it's successful, um, yes, it is It is kind of a joy to, to, to witness. Um, but I would also say that even when it's not successful, um, there's something to be learned from it and gained from it, either as the creator or as the observer. Um, and I'm thinking about um, folks who make films that, that, you know, in modern parlance, bomb, right? And they're just terrible. And, um, you know, I, I think that we learn something from whatever it is. And, and, but I mean, th that creativity is about learning, right? I, mean, I remember as an undergraduate sitting in a, in a class and my, my man who became one of my mentors and most important people in my uh, intellectual life, um, I remember sitting in class one day and he was trying something new some new thing with an author, the way he was approaching it. And it bombed. I can't remember the specifics of what it was, but it bombed. And I remember sitting in the front row of the classroom. So help me, this is 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, and thinking to myself, well, I'm not gonna do that. Um, you know, and just sort of filing away like, well, okay, that doesn't work. Um, but you gotta, you gotta take those risks. Right. I mean, and, and I think we see it in the world of the arts. We see it in the science world, too. Um, you know, as the director of undergraduate research and creative activity, I'm constantly telling students all research involves creativity and all creativity involves research. Um, it is it, it really does. Um, it is both in the same. Uh, you know, and if you don't think that scientists have to be creative, you don't understand what science research is. Yeah, it, I often wonder, because people can get in trouble there. Like when you begin getting into some some sort of creative ideas about data or, or you know, you create something that yeah. may not be there. It's such a double-edged sword because like on For some sure. level, you could be looked at as a fraud. And on another level, you looked at as something that's original or avant-garde or something. Like, how yeah. do you, like, I, I, what is that? Certainly, I, you know, I mean, this the whole field of, of, of sort of data fudging, if you will, right, of, 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 of 
you know, what now we call fake news and, and, and all of the problems that we've had in the last decade with this kind of issue. Yeah, it's, it's a serious problem. But it's not that creativity that I'm talking about. I'm talking about creative, uh, being creative with, I, I was just talking with a bunch of students and we were talking about a student that I had several years ago who was doing a, a project over the summer in chemistry. And she was working in the lab every day. And about halfway through the summer, the mass spectroscopy machine broke and we couldn't get it fixed before the end of the summer when she needed to continue working with it. And she needed to become creative about how she was going to continue to do her research. Um, you know, I, I had a student several years ago during the pandemic who did a summer scholars project in my office um, virtually over that summer, the first summer of the pandemic. And she was working in biology and her project was to look at the elasticity of vegan cheese. And she rigged up this crazy Rube Goldberg device in her kitchen using kitchen utensils in order to test the elasticity because she didn't have access to the lab equipment. So, you know, that's what I mean when, I, when I'm talking about being creative. And, and, you know, the creativity also comes in when you, when you hit walls, right? And we all deal with that. I mean, I know I deal with that in my own research um, where you, 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 you're following something that you think is going to lead somewhere and it leads you down a, a, an alley or a hall and, and there's nothing there. And now what do you do? Um, you know, I mean, and, and the, I think the resiliency of the researcher or the artist is in what you do. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, a, a, you know, taking, making lemonade out of lemons, right? I mean, you know, this, uh, this fell apart, but now what am I going to do, right? I'm not going to just crumble and throw it out. Um, what can I do to, to sort of recreate and refashion this? And that refashioning is something which is really interesting because um, that that uh, th there's a, a great book by a guy named Stephen Greenblatt. Um, he wrote a book called Renaissance Self-Fashioning. And he's talking in that book about the fact that the Renaissance, the English Renaissance in particular, was really the first period of time when people really began to create themselves, who they were. Um, you fashioned who you were. And part of that was through actually you know, what you wore, right? I mean, it was self-fashioning, how you fashioned yourself. And I think a lot of how um, artists and researchers operate is in looking at how are you going to fashion yourself? What do you see yourself? How do you see yourself as an artist or a researcher? What do you see yourself doing? Um, and how is that then going to um, bring you to a certain point, a certain uh, Endpoint, um, but it, it, it's you know I, I was looking through some of my my um, things on my shelf this morning when we were talking about talking about creativity, and um, I opened up a, a book by Paul Valery called Analects, just a bunch of little things that he wrote over the course of his life, just little notes really, um, and one of the ones that I opened up to. He says, such is my turn of mind that I don't expect to learn everything from A to Z from books, but only to get seeds of thought that I can cultivate within myself in my private garden. So it's, you know, it's also this idea that you're not going to learn everything from books, but you're going to get the seeds. And it's why it's so important for artists to study other artists. Right. I mean, if you're if you're if you want to to paint, 
you have to know what's been done before. Um, you have to study the history of art. Um, and then you take those seeds and you, as he says, you cultivate them within yourself in your own private garden and you invent something new. I like that. That's, that's fascinating to me. And it, you know, it, my next question was going to be something along the lines of as a creative director, how do you foster creativity in people? But I think you answered that question by getting people to understand who they are and figure out who they are and then express who they are. Yeah. I'm and, if and you could maybe, yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go on. I, I was going to say at, with your background, and expertise, some of your expertise being in, in the medieval times, do you, can you draw a parallel to how, it, it seems like those times were restrictive, but there was an explosion of art. And in some ways it seems like today, like we're being restricted, but it's, I've yet to see the explosion in art. Am I missing it? Or are there some parallels there? Or how do you um, see the two yeah. meshing? I mean, I do think we're having an explosion in, in art for lack of another way of putting it today. Um, there certainly is tremendous growth in the visual arts, in the performing arts, um, and and certainly in in writing. Um, and you know, it, it, it's a lot of that is the effect of you know what we've what we've talked about before being the democratization of of society and 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 the internet. Um, you know, I mean, you can now be an artist and put your work up for sale up on you know you can make a website, you can put it up on Etsy, you can put it up on eBay and um, and call yourself an artist. Um, I, I don't know what that means exactly when you call yourself an artist. I've always struggled a little bit with that. Um, I think to some degree we're all artists. Um, and so I think it's kind of a misnomer to, to self-identify and say, well, I'm an artist um, because we all are. Um, you know, so if I have a student who comes in and says, I I'm an artist and I say, well, what do you do? You know, and they'll say, well, I paint. Okay. So you're a painter, right? Um, or you're a sculptor, um, or you are a filmmaker and, and to think about the medium that you use to convey your art, the, the, the history of looking at creativity is, is an interesting one because, I mean, it goes back to the Greeks. I mean, you know, Plato and Aristotle are talking about the creative element and what goes into creativity and and the whole, you know, mirror held up to nature and, and that kind of thing. And then it really isn't until, though, the Enlightenment and the 20th century that we kind of get the idea of a personal creativity. Because for many years, throughout the Middle Ages even, I mean, it was really looked at that only God could create. Right. So if we were doing anything, it was just mimicry, it was imitation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't really until we got past the Enlightenment that now it became this, that we, we were permitted to have the agency to create. And I, I, I think that has interesting implications when you look at medieval and Renaissance art and you see the shift. Um, by the time we get to the 18th and 19th century. And I'm not thinking just in visual arts, but in, in writing, right? I mean, the, the, the novel is born at that time. Um, and there's a, a much, there's a big shift in writing from being about action to being about the internal. 
Um, for example, um, I teach a course on Arthurian literature. And most of the early literature in King Arthur is about what the knights did. He went there, he did this, he met her, they did this. And it wasn't until really the, um, the Renaissance, um, the Italian Renaissance, 12th century, 13th century, with a French writer named Chrétien de Troyes, who writes um, the first real internal literature about these figures, what they're thinking and what their motivations are. And that's more about what we think about today when we think about writing, right? I mean, if it's, if it's, if it's C-spot run kind of stuff, we think about that as being childish. We want more of a development of character. And that, that did not exist originally because it, you couldn't create character. Who are you? Only God can create. Well, now we talk about this all the time, authors creating characters, creating a world. Right, the world of Harry Potter, um, you know, creating these 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 worlds, and um, that's that's a, a tremendous responsibility. Um, I think, as as you know, many have have noted, um, you know, the great poet Delmore Schwartz um, wrote about that a bit about the, the the importance of understanding the responsibility that we have if we are creating something. Yeah, that is fascinating to think about. When you look at the shift from action to internal, can you give me some examples of how that shifted our society? I think in large part it was a, a, a greater understanding of who we are as individuals and what makes us tick. Um, and it was, you know, I mean, it, it, it rivals, of course, the rise of psychoanalysis, Freud, Jung, and this, this understanding that there's more to a person than just what we're seeing. Um, it's, 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 it's much more involved than that. And we see that reflected, of course, in, in the literature as well, um, even before Freud and Jung. I mean, with, with the development of the novel and the rise of the novel in the late 18th and 19th centuries, then. I mean, if you look at at novels like Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre or the Brontes or, or any Dickens novel. I mean, they're, they're going deeper inside the characters' minds. And that was a place that we really hadn't gone in literature of that kind before. It was being done to some degree on the stage. Right? I mean, the, the Greeks did it. Shakespeare certainly did it. Right. I mean, on stage, we had a better understanding of the character. I mean, if you think about a character like Hamlet, we understand who Hamlet is. We it's more than actor. And we get a lot of that through his soliloquies where we hear about his inner thoughts. The soliloquy transferred to the page in the novel, then by the time we get to the development of the novel in the 19th century, and we are getting that in those kinds of characters. So in a way we can kind of see the our own evolution of creation through the arts in that form. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure that this is paralleled to some degree in the music world. Right. Um, not, not being enough of an, of a, of an aficionado of classical music. I can't say much about that. I know Mozart and that's about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, but I mean, if we think about contemporary music today and, and even popular music and the way that it is so confessional 
and so revelatory. I mean, everybody, you know, Taylor Swift just tells you all about every relationship that she's had. She's an open book. Um, that's something which is a modern sort of phenomenon in some ways. Um, I mean, I, 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 you can might trace it back to James Joyce. Mm. Look at Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and then eventually Ulysses, and really hearing what's inside the characters' minds. I mean, when I read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, that book is incredibly painful because you are really inside Stephen Daedalus's head, experiencing what he's experiencing as a teenage boy at this Catholic school. And he is in a lot of pain. And because we are hearing it from his perspective, we are able to, to, to kind of tap into that empathy. Yeah, that's a, that's a, can you excuse me for one second? I gotta go, my cat is just killing me. Real fast. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Hey, you monkeys, what are you doing? Get down from there. Get down. There we go. I'm sorry about that. Those crazy animals are driving me nuts. Yeah, so <laughs> it blows my mind to think about when you when you look at through the lens of music today. I think there's a parallel. Well, some people who are artists, I guess they like you said they can all be artists, but there are some people that write their own music, they play their own instruments, whether they yeah. sing or they play an instrument. And then there's other particular bands or individuals who have stuff written for them and they follow a script. And on some level, I think most people, while still looking at them as a performer, see them differently than someone who is creating their own type of music, their own type of, of sound. And I think yeah. you can draw a parallel between an artist and, that writes a book and, or performs that way. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's the development of singer-songwriter in the 1960s, right? right? But, but that doesn't... Um, that doesn't mean that somebody like, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra or Mel Torme or Whitney Houston, who are interpreting other people's songs, aren't artists in their own right, because they are interpreting them. They are, you know, I mean, and we, we always think about that as being, you know, the best performances like that make it theirs. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know who wrote most of the songs that Sinatra sang. Um, I think about them as Sinatra songs, <laughs> because his interpretations of them <laughs> are just so powerful and so his um you know I, it, it's a song i mean if i say white christmas you think bill bing crosby and bing crosby didn't write white christmas um but you know he he, he made that song his and now you know if anybody else sings white christmas i don't know about you but automatically in my mind i'm comparing it to bing crosby and say this isn't better than bing crosby i'd rather hear bing crosby <laughs> you know, and, and so, so sometimes we see this intersection or this eruption of creative forces. And when we talk about who wrote a Sinatra song or Bing Crosby, I grew up in the in the 80s and 90s. And there was a band called Millie Vanilli. Mm. And these guys just looked like they were the perfect people to sing this song. But it turns out they have this huge concert. The record skips and this whole thing explodes. And they were just front people. But they, it's not like they weren't creative. They were good dancers. They were doing stuff. Yeah, but and, they weren't and, only front people, so George. They were they were lip syncing. I know. They weren't even singing. They were lip syncing. <laughs> so it's one thing to be singing and interpreting somebody else's stuff, but all they were doing was was dancing and lip syncing. 
Um, so that was the problem there. It wasn't them singing. And of course, sadly, one of those guys eventually committed suicide. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. It's a horrible thing. But I, I was trying to bring up the point of creativity. It almost got hijacked by like there was somebody in the background that said, you know what? I like this sound, but it yeah. would be a lot better if these guys pretended to sing it. And yeah. it, that's its own sort of way of captivating or stealing creativity. And, and, and that eruption between the people that actually created it and the people that were trying to create an image of it. Like there's this weird dichotomy there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think it's interesting when you hear a songwriter um, play and sing his or her own songs even if they're not the ones who made the songs famous because it takes on a whole different tenor um and i I find that very interesting i i actually enjoy listening to those kinds of recordings usually they're acoustic of them playing you know on a piano or over the guitar and singing the song that they wrote even if it's not the one that they made famous because it was made famous by somebody else yeah i think i remember my one of my mentors told me when I was spending a lot of time with him, he says, you know, George, who writes all Elton John, Elton John songs? And I'm like, I have no idea. And he, he's, he began to tell me, like, look, you know, there's, a, there's the way the world operates. Sometimes you can be the guy in the flashy jacket. Sometimes you can be the guy behind the scenes. Very yeah. rarely are you both. But I always, I always held on to that. And I'm like, wow, that's, and it just got me thinking, like, what kind of an individual, like the person that writes and creates the song usually has the passion but maybe they don't have the the need to want to wear the flashy jacket but they're happy to create it for someone else that's a that's an interesting i always think that's very fascinating. yeah it may be and, and i mean of course in the case of elton john I mean, elton john did write does write the music bernie Taupin writes the lyrics okay um, for, mo for most of those songs um yeah. but yeah i think you're right i mean i mean i've never heard bernie Taupin sing i don't <laughs> know if he can sing <laughs> um you know but certainly elton john is an entertainer um, you know, and, and that's the way I would think of him as an entertainer, right? Whereas, um, you know, somebody like James Taylor is a, is a, is a singer songwriter, although a lot of James Taylor's most famous songs, he didn't write, <laughs> which I would find interesting, you know, he, he, songs that you identify with James Taylor and you're like, oh, well, he actually didn't write that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you've got a friend, he didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that t the title of that song you got a friend and then he didn't write that song. he was had a good friend write him that song <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I think carol king wrote that song um i think um somebody can correct us if, I, if i'm wrong but you know i and and how many kids sing that at, at camp i mean it's a camp song right yeah yeah it's mind-blowing to me and i in some ways I think we're on the cusp of, of seeing this radical shift the same way you spoke about the, the Arthurian legends of action giving way to internal thought. I think we're on the cusp of a new way of looking at things or maybe you know a, a cyclical way of looking at things. If you had to take a guess at what may be the next shift, what would you guess? Well, I'm worried that people are going too far within themselves and becoming isolated. Um, and, um, that's a, that's a, a real concern. Um, I mean, when I think about the ways in which, and, and let's just do the last, you know, hundred years when the way, the ways in which, um, certain artists have dealt with their creative, um, drive and 
the kind of of pain that goes with a lot of that. I mean, you know, there there have been multiple studies of the links between creativity and and mental illness, right? Um, creativity yes. and um, bipolar, creativity and depression and schizophrenia, and some of the greatest artists of the of the last half of the twentieth century um, certainly dealt with one of those uh, very problems. Um, I'm worried today that people have become so isolated that ultimately the the the, the next you know the next Allen Ginsberg may be out there, but may be so isolated and so in his own head that we're not getting the the fruits of that. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I don't read a lot of the the sort of scattered stuff that's on the internet. I mean, you know, everybody's got a web page, right? Um, you know, I don't read a lot of that. And so, you know, I, I know I've got friends who are big followers of X, Y, or Z who publishes just online. Um, and I tend not to look at that stuff. And, and I guess it's just my old, my own old fashioned bias in saying, well, you know, it should be published um, and available in that way, in some kind of a vetted way, um, rather than the, the this, you know, everybody can have anything up on the internet. So I, I don't know, the isolation, I think, is what is what I'm concerned about, is, uh, is people being isolated and and keeping a lot i mean i i see some incredible art produced by my students and you know i'll, I'll talk with some of them and and you know that they're, they're majoring in finance it's like oh that's great but you're not sharing your art you're not sharing your art with the world and you should um you know be a finance major but share your art i mean i have a student from several years ago who is a lawyer now um pretty successful pretty good lawyer and she's also an amazing painter um, and she has continued to paint and show her work. Um, now, granted, we're talking about people who have privileged positions that they could do that. But I do think that mm. that's an important part of it. I mean, it's an important part of what we talk about with research, research and creative work, right? Research and creative activity are nothing if they aren't disseminated. If you don't share it with others, it's pointless. We're, we're, you're not Emily Dickinson. Right. You're not going to lock up your poems in, in, a, in a box with a bow on it and then someone's going to discover it after you die. It doesn't mean anything if you're not sharing it with other people, because that is what contributes and gets a discussion going and contributes to the overall discussion. And I think that that's what's really important in, in this work. So, you know, we talk about this all the time when we talk about students working on projects. And, um, you know, I'll say, well, you're going to you're going to submit that to present at a conference, right? No, 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 I'm not going to do that. It's like, well, then why did you just do that work? Because you're not nobody's going to know about it. That brings up some really interesting points. When you speak about the idea of isolation, it, it automatically brought to my mind this kind of voyeuristic world in which we're beginning to live. And I'll give you an example of that. There's a whole new genre of books called um, like lit rpg like role-playing games so people yeah. are writing books about someone else playing a game and you as the reader plug it when i was a young man you know, i don't play video games now as a man but when i was a little boy i played them all the time and nowadays it's not uncommon to have groups of young boys or girls watch other people play video games 
the yeah. same way you would go and watch a sport, a soccer football game. Yeah. They'll sit down and watch uh, somebody else play a video game. It's it's yeah. voyeuristic in that way. And I wonder if the isolation has something to do with that. Yeah, it might, I, I I don't understand that. I, 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 I've happened upon those kinds of things because even ESPN <laughs> sometimes shows them. And I'm like, well, wait, we're watching someone play a video game. I don't I don't get that. <laughs> I mean, I remember standing around somebody in an arcade watching them play. Yeah. And you know, you know, I, I hope you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna, you know, finally rescue the the princess or or uh you know beat Pac-Man. But um I, I don't really get that. I, I think that the the rise in these RPGs is really interesting because again, we're talking about creating, right? Creating characters, creating worlds. Mm -hmm. And it's it's akin to, you know, what some of us remember playing Dungeons and Dragons back in the 70s, which I guess is hot again. Uh, and that's what that is, right? You're you're creating these characters and you're creating this alternate universe. And all of these are, I think, are are kind of group activities. Now, whether they're they're conducted actually in person or over the internet, because you're playing a game with someone who's you know five thousand miles away, um, the isolation there that bugs me a bit. Um, the idea of somebody sitting in their room you know, 24 seven playing a game with a bunch of other people online from around the world and thinking that they're having a social experience. I think that's a problem. Um, and, you know, the studies are, are coming out about this because it's a, it's a live thing. It's, it's happening now. The effect of this on people, uh, you know, we, we saw it through COVID, right? I mean, all of these students who sat on their beds for months on end, supposedly doing school and, you know, missing out on any social interactions. And what did that mean now that they're back in school? It's really, uh, it's, it's, it's changed a lot. Yeah. You know, on a, I try to find reasons or look for the positive things that I think may be happening. And sometimes I think if I can think of these things, they must be real on some level. And I want to give you an example of a, a, an interesting thing and then get your opinion on it. A lot of the children today, they will have their headsets on and they will be playing games online. And when you look at someone from a, if, if you're watching someone play a game and, and they, they have their headset on, it's, it's very similar to hearing voices in your head, which we would have thought of as someone with a mental disorder yeah. not too long ago. And one of the positive outcomes of that, that I recently, I was recently speaking to a gentleman and we were talking about goals and, and how to make your life better and make the world around you better. And one of the things he said is like, you know, I really get a kick out of doing things for people and having them not know who I am. You know, maybe I can mm -hmm. come up and say something kind to them, or I can point them in the right direction, or I can give them a book. And, you know, I, I don't need any recognition for that. I just want right. to help. And right. in my mind, I think it does. And then I correlate, I, I, maybe those two things are correlated between speaking to a voice on a headset that you may never see their face and doing something kind for them, whether it's in the game, but then equating that to real world outside. Like now you're out in the world and the same way you did something nice for the voice in your head, yeah. maybe you see that other person as a voice out there. And maybe that's something that's kind of shifting the conscious of people. Is that too far out there? No, I mean, and I, I think if that does transfer, then that'd be a wonderful thing. Um, you know, I'm not sure it is, but I, I, I think it, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it is because I think what's happened is a lot of the time 
especially the kids who were playing those games, are at such a a, a formative stage in their in their maturation that it it it, it it's it's removing something from their social skills. And so I don't know if it's transferring. I think it just is encouraging them actually to just be alone and inside their head. Um, you know, and, and I, I could be completely wrong. And, you know, please argue with me if, if you think I am. But I just I think that, um, you know, it, it would be nice if that transferred. I don't know if it is. I think that, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I'm not going to going to pile on video games here by talking about them as being this horrible, evil thing. Um, but, you know, we all know that, you know, most video games, by and large, are are based in in some kind of violence. Um, yeah. Certainly the popular ones, if you look at the, the top 10 best selling ones. Um, and I I'm afraid of what that's teaching kids about how to deal with conflict. Mm. Um, you know, and, you know, we were kids, we watched Bugs Bunny and they were. You know, Bugs Bunny could could be pretty violent, but we always knew it was a cartoon. And because video games are getting to be so real and realistic, um, and because the kids who are playing them at are such formative ages in their emotional and psychological development, I worry sometimes that they're just transferring that and saying, well, okay, the video game... That was so real. And now look at reality. It's just like that. Um, and it's not. Um, you know, and and we see it. I mean, the, the, you know, the 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 rise of, of of violence, I mean the 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 occurrence of violence in our culture, it's just it's it's sickening. Um, you know, I mean, I watch the local news here every morning and, and it's like watching a police blotter. Because all it is talking about is, you know, the shootings that happened last night. Um, and, and of course, you know, we're seeing it oftentimes happen younger and younger. We just had this very high-profile case here in Newport News last week where a six-year-old shot his teacher. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, it's crazy. And, and so, you know, that's, that elementary school has been closed. I think they're planning to reopen Monday, so they will have been closed for almost two full weeks. They had a big meeting last night with parents, and one of the solutions is they're putting in metal detectors. So, again, it's not really looking at the what's the root of the problem here because, you know, in the typical Western fashion, we don't look at prevention. We look at treating the symptoms. Yeah, everything from social disasters to drug design. You know, we're not we're not trying to solve the problem. We're just trying no. to put a big band-aid on there. Yeah. yeah. And it, when you know when you speak about the idea of video games in that manner, it's weird to see the world in which technology is trying to gamify the workplace, gamify driving, gamify everything. And the majority of games out there are goal oriented and it usually has to do with some sort of you know, materialistic gain. You know, it's not like you're trying to create a better environment or you're mm -hmm. trying to become more, more part of the system or develop. I wonder what part of, what, what, what is language? Where, where does language fit into creativity? We spoke about the, the Middle Evil Ages and obviously there was a more, there was a different type of communication there and there was a different type of writing and a different type of art. 
move forward into almost, I, I would argue that there's been a degradation of language. And maybe that shows the, the you know, maybe that arises at the same time as the, uh, the artists who, uh, what was that form of art when the, the deconstructionist, did they come out in a time when language is being degraded or can you draw a parallel to well, language and creativity? I don't know if it's a degradation. I mean, you know, the English language is a living language. Um, and so it's constantly changing. Um, and there are, you know, certainly um, two different sort of schools of thought when it comes to this. The one is the prescriptivists who say, you know, this is the way it should be and these are the rules. And the other are the descriptivists who are, you know, well, this is the way language is being used. So that's what we're looking at. Um, and I think, you know, both of them are interesting. Both of them have merits, I think. Um, you know, I, I, I have never been one to teach grammar in a class. Um, even when I, when I taught, uh, you know, remedial English classes years ago, I never really taught grammar because my attitude about it always was that, um, it's, it's like driving a car. I mean, in order to drive a car, you don't first have to learn how the engine works. Um, and so, you know, if you know the rules of grammar, that's not really going to help you to, to become necessarily a better writer. I think you write and you kind of learn as you need to go along. Um, it makes me think about the, the, the program Microsoft Excel, the spreadsheet program, right? This, that program can do everything from, you know, doing the most basic things that you might need of putting together a list of invitations for your birthday party to doing, you know, high financial analysis for a corporation. Well, I needed to do something in between. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to look to, I don't need to know how to do the high finance for the corporation. So I'm going to sort of just dive in there and start fooling with it. And then as things come up, I'm like, okay, well, how do you do this? Because that's really what I need to know. And one of the problems that I've always had with the, 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 especially the, uh, the books that come out to help you learn how to use a computer program is it starts from, you know, the most basic thing and it's going to show you everything. Like, I don't need to know everything. I only need to know how to do this. This is what my part of it is. And so, um, you know, I, I, I've always thought that the teaching of formal English grammar is probably not very helpful. Now, I should say, in elementary school, some of it is. But once you get past there and you're on to middle school and high school, if you haven't learned that yet, you ain't learning it now. And so it really is not going to be helpful. Um, and so I, I, I find the, the usagists, you know, the folks who study English usage, really interesting. Um, there's a, a, a guy named Garner who publishes a book on, on English usage. Um, I forget how many editions he's had now, American English usage. And it's just a, it's a dictionary of American English usage of words and how they're being used. Um, and you know, I, I was just at an event and, uh, one of my students was sitting there and she had socks on that had a, a, a Labrador retriever on it. And um, the, the student who was sitting next to it said they, they were making a joke about, you know, having your socks off and, and, and you know, your, your dog's free. 
And she looked at me, she said, do you know what that means? And I said, yes, I'm old. I'm not dead. You know, your dogs in that case, <laughs> your, your feet, you know, she was talking about her feet with the socks on. But, you know, if you were to look up dogs in the Oxford English Dictionary, you're not going to find that, you know, they may mean feet, but usage. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. You know, it, it reminds me of that old book, uh, Flatland by yeah. uh, Abbott and yeah. how people can see things in like a one dimensional way or a two dimensional way. And if, if, if you lived in this one plane and you saw a cube coming and you would have no mm -hmm. words to describe it, you would just yeah. see this. You wouldn't see all the dimensions of it. Well, it, I, I it, worry it, sometimes. Well, it's perspective, right? I mean, now we're back mm -hmm. with perspective and how yeah. how we how we view the world. Um, you know, I think about that, that very early film by the Lumiere brothers of the train coming towards the station and people sitting in the theater when they saw that screaming because they thought the train was going to come right off the screen and come into the station. Um, it's perspective and it's what you um, are familiar with and what you understand. And so it's, it's frames of reference, right? And maybe, so this is an idea that I had a, a, a while back that, what if we took what if we used our language today like the, we, let's take the english language and we added like some sort of suffix and a prefix that denoted um honesty you know almost, almost like honorifics or something like that like you know, maybe we're one step away maybe and, and we, we can see the language changing right now that the different the different ways in which we're using different parts of language we never have before what if we're on the cusp of just changing a suffix that denoted honesty and integrity? And if you use that in contract law, all of a sudden people would be held guilty. They would be mm. held accountable. You know, maybe that's where we're at with this idea of creativity and this rebirth sort of where we're at right now is our language is about to shift in a way that allows us to understand a new perspective. Because that's really all we need is just a shift in perspective mm -hmm. to get the world back where we want it to be or to, to set up the world in a direction that we want to go. Maybe that's where we're headed. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. I mean, it, it I mean, the, the, the roadblocks there are everybody's got a got on board. And, you know, and as we've talked about so often, you know, our our world is just moving so damn fast yeah. that, you know, to have everybody sort of stop and say, you know, hey, look over here. Um, I don't I don't even know if that's possible anymore. Um, because I mean, you know, the, the the flood of media and data on a daily basis that people get, um, it, it it's it's kind of frightening um, to to think of, uh, you know. And, and I mean, you know, and and mind you, I don't want to go back to the days when, although sometimes you know, nostalgically maybe, um, when you got your your morning paper and you watched the news at six o'clock and you listened to Walter Cronkite and you got the late news at eleven o'clock and that was all you knew. Um, yeah. you know, now we we are inundated with news, um, you know, every moment of every day. and it it, it it's overwhelming at times. Um, you know, I, I understand why people want to uh, sort of retreat. And I do understand why people are becoming isolated yeah. um, for that reason, um, because it's scary. It's hard to keep up with. It's scary from that perspective. If you are somebody who, who prides yourself on knowing what's going on, 
um, you know, being that person today is a hell of a lot more work and has more pressure than it did 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, learning so learning something today that may be true that causes you to have to go back and revisit everything that you did in the past. That's a big problem. That's a lot of bandwidth. That's a lot of perspective changing in real time that you have to do if you want to, you know, be intellectually honest with yourself or maybe that's dishonest. I don't know, but yeah. there's a lot of things you have to go back and rethink. It's, it's like in that book, 1984, when they would get the new, the new thing would come out, depending on yeah. who they're at war with. And you got to go back and change all the articles and change everything yeah. in, your, in yeah. your mind. It's, I can understand it too. It, it does seem as if the times we were just at not too long ago were so much simpler. Well, but we experienced, we experienced those, those shifts. Yeah. in a lot of arenas. I, I was reading the, the New York Times review this morning of the new um, Night Court uh, comedy that's on, oh, I think it's on NBC. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a, a kind of a reboot of the old Night Court show. John Larroquette is on it again. And there was an interview with him in the Times, and he's 75 now. Um, he had no interest in doing it. Um, he was convinced to do it. He's reprising the role. But he talked about the fact that, I mean, it's a very different character now because when it was on in the 1980s, um, you know, 80s and I guess early 90s, I think it was, um, you know, he was a he was a, a, a sort of a despicable womanizer. Um, and that's not going to fly today. And so, you know, I, I didn't watch the show. It was on, I guess, last night, I think, or the night before. I, I, I still want to see it because I did like the original. But um it's interesting the way that those shifts are happening, even within people's lifetimes, yeah. when that wasn't the case previously, right? I mean, those kinds of changes would take decades. And now the shift occurs, you know, almost overnight. I mean, I, I, I can remember presenting at a conference in Washington, D.C., probably this is maybe 10 years ago. And we were talking about... Um, compensating faculty and faculty evaluation. Um, very exciting topic. The, the, the movie, <laughs> yeah, next week, George Clooney will be playing me. Um, and, um, and I remember somebody asked a question. We were in a, in a packed room for this presentation um, because it was a very hot topic that we were presenting about. And uh, somebody asked a question and I said, well, we need to make sure that this is, you know, equitable for all faculty or they're going to feel like they're getting chipped. And someone came up to me after the talk and said, do you know that that's a, 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 a slam, a slander to say gypped? And I, 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 at that time, did not know, did not understand why it was. You know, I mean, I, I really, I, I remember I went back to my hotel room and I, I looked it up because I was like, well, wait a minute, what? And I realized that, yes, I mean, it, it's short for, for gypsies and, you know, the idea of being gypped. And it actually was a, was a, a kind of a, of a slander and um, that you can't use that word anymore. And so there's a shift that occurred, you know, pretty quickly um, within, within my lifetime, to be sure. And uh, so the way that language changes and the way that we're sort of permitted to use language and what's permissible I mean, today we're seeing it in in in, a, in a, probably in a more heightened degree than ever before because you know all you have to do is tweet something that's that's you know got the wrong word or the wrong attitude or the wrong sentiment and 
you know, we live in, in cancel culture. Yeah, it's true. I saw, I recently saw a debate with Jordan Peterson and Eric Dyson. It was fascinating to see two of these guys get out there. Both of them have such a command of the English language. And it's, it just, it brought me hope in some ways to think like, wow, there are people out here that are pushing the boundaries of what is possible and they can communicate it not only to themselves, but to each other. And the, and, yeah. and the idea that you can push those boundaries using language. And it just made me realize how important the language we have is, especially teaching it to the kids and the use of metaphors and the ability to have a language that is almost beheld in front of you. When you can, when you see someone that understands the trivium and rhetoric and can put these things in front of you and you can see the world in a way, it, it gives me hope and promise to, to see, you know, just to use language like that, I can see what's going to happen. It's, it's fascinating. Well, I, think well, I mean, that. language still is power. It always has been. Yes. Right. And if you, if you are articulate, um, you are looked at with a different view than someone who is not. Um, you know, I, 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 I oftentimes teach the essays of James Baldwin. Fantastic, incredible essayist. I mean, unbelievable with language. And, um, you know, he basically says that if you're going to talk to white people about the, the, the problem of black America, you're going to have to talk to them in their language. And so he realized that he had that he was going to have to do that. Tony Morrison has said the same thing. Um, and so, you know, there's there's something to that. Um, I, I remember during the first Gulf War, um, we had sent um, CIA folks over to um, the Middle East. And there was a story on 60 Minutes about the fact that I think we had two CIA agents who were fluent in Farsi. And they were talking to all these people whose language was Farsi, but we couldn't speak their language. So how are you going to deal with anybody? I mean, in that case, you know, trying to to talk with them about what was happening in their world in <clears throat> an attempt to try to change things, but you don't speak their language. Um, and so, you know, the, the, there's a, a Baldwin essay called Stranger in the Village, one of my favorite essays, where he talks about, you know, when he went to um, Switzerland and he says, you know, I, I'm sure that before I got to this little small Swiss, Swiss village, they had never seen a black man before. Um, and he talks about the whole history of of Western culture and of it being white and how in order to sort of make a change, it meant that he was going to have to speak their language. And it's, it's interesting, the relationship between culture and language and how they are, you know, almost beyond, there's no way to describe, there's no words to really describe it. I mean, you can say it's, it's rich or it's, complicated but it's very difficult for to present an argument that has the essence of the relationship between those two things no wonder we can't get along no wonder there's so much war it's it's we can't communicate effectively well i mean it's that that's the uh the the, the paradox of the tower of babel right i mean yeah, I, I it's that. the bible right uh you know up until then everyone spoke the same language and 
you know, God and it being vindictive in that in that story because the people were trying to build the tower to reach him. Um, supposedly whips all these foreign languages on them so they can't work together, so they can't can't talk and uh, and, and and communicate so they can't continue to build a tower. Um, but, you know, getting away from that, I mean, you know, the, the beauty of languages is it, it's really kind of incredible when you look at them. I mean, you know, the study of, of foreign languages in American schools is in such a, a, a bad state. Um, and it, it's 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 really disturbing. I mean, this attitude that you know, well, everyone speaks English is just it's it's moronic, to be honest. Um, and I, I mean, I think the ability to be articulate in any language, whether it's English, French, Farsi, or Russian, whatever it is, is a gift. Uh, you know, I mean, I know, you know, it, it, I mean, I I, I can read. Uh, French, my spoken French is terrible, but I can read French. And when I read, uh, you know, something, a Balzac novel or, or Proust, I mean, I can appreciate the, the 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 use of the French language the same way that I do when I read an English novelist and appreciate the way that they are articulating themselves or, or you know, nonfiction for that matter, you know, what, what, whatever it is that I'm reading in, in, in the daily paper or magazines. And seeing the way people have um, really honed their craft, because it is a craft. It is a craft. Using language is a craft. Writing is a craft. Um, and the only way you can do it is to is to practice. Yeah, maybe that's one reason why why sometimes, at least in my world, maybe that's why with the explosion and the adoption of English everywhere, maybe that's why we begin to think, we begin to see things kind of bland or one dimensional is that we're only using one way to describe things. And I, I think in ancient, in, in ancient Greek and in Hebrew, the, the letters serve as numbers. And, you know, yeah. when you learn a different language, you learn the different structure of that language. Like sometimes there's a no double negative or the verb comes before the noun or vice versa. And when you begin studying languages, you begin seeing the world different. So when we start losing languages, you can argue that we're losing ways in which to interpret the world. Well, and, and in, in some ways, I think what we have done as a culture is we've removed the nuance from the English language. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of foreign languages are still incredibly nuanced. I mean, you talk about, about Hebrew. I mean, biblical Hebrew um, doesn't have any vowels. And so when you read biblical Hebrew... There's a lot of nuance into reading that because you have to understand what those words are without seeing the vowels. Um, and I think we've removed a lot of the nuance from language today and made it too much about, you know, this is what it means. Um, yeah. It's a one for one. There's there's no there's no nuance. Um, and that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Yeah, I, I think that that comes from law and finance like that's Absolutely. people trying to figure out this is it black or white yeah no you're absolutely right i mean it 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 it, it legalizes yes. everything that we say right i mean because now any word that comes out of my mouth has a, a you know they would say they would say a a you know a, a standard sort of static meaning that's what it means yeah. and you know it's not enough to say well i didn't mean it that way because, no, but that's what you said, right? Um, that, 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 that's dangerous. 
it is dangerous. It, 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 it allows us to focus on the least common denominator, regardless of who we are. And let's just simplify this incredible piece of work down to like something. So <laughs> it makes me kind of mad. You have to laugh if you don't get upset, but let's just break this beautiful thing down into like something really ugly and small. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we're getting ready to land the plane right here, I got a, I got a little exercise that I wanted to do with you. And I'm going to go through some, some pages here. And I would like you to give me your initial idea of what you think of when you see these images. Are you ready? Okay. I feel like I'm getting into the psychoanalysis. The, what do you think? Of the analyst this? chair here. <laughs> you are. What do I think of when I see that? That looks like, uh, well, I mean, a free associate. I mean, that to me, that's a, that reminds me of Hildegard of Bingen's Illuminations, 12th century where God's light comes down to her and in, in her illuminations to her mind here, that light is coming into this person's heart and they are really awestruck by it. Beautiful. Let's move on. This is Jung's red book, isn't it? <laughs> is it? I thought I would have got a couple more pages before you would have figured that out. It is. Yeah. I, I, I thought it looked familiar. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, the snake, I think, I mean, especially when it comes to you, I think the Ouroboros, right? Um, although that's an interesting sort of almost looks like a paw print in the red. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's keep moving here. We'll go through a couple more just to get your sure. here. This one's an interesting one. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, this, this reminds me of, um, oh, what's that ancient statue of the woman it's one of the oldest statues that we have um oh, i can't remember the name of it um it reminds me of that um the, the in the statue the woman is is has very wide hips it's it's a it's a very female image <clears throat> of course you know not even looking at what jung is doing in, in the backgrounds in these which is all interesting as well Right. Can't tell what she's holding though. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think that is? You know, I. I, I I see just I, I just see the primitive nature of it when I see it mm. without digging into the what exactly she's holding. It just seems to me that I, I would I would go with the the primordial now. Like this is us now, even though it, that was us then. Like we're still here in this moment as and as modern as we think we are. Was trying to grasp on to that which we uh, doesn't really yeah. make sense, huh? but it's it's I think it's you the get the point. Like it's, it's yeah, it's the Venus of Willendorf that I'm thinking of. Um, oh, I don't know if you can get that, okay. can get that image up. Um, I, I can picture it in my mind, but I um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've seen it. it's like a bronze statue, almost like a bronze stone. color. It's stone. Here, I'm going to try to stone. I'm going to try to move my camera okay, to show yeah, you. Please. Hang on a second. Okay. Oh, yes. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah it's fascinating to think of. I, I, um, I had heard some interesting stories about uh, Young and the Red Book and his time writing it and yeah, it's just such a mystical, mystical adventure. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I can't say enough about it. Yeah, here this looks like uh, possibly something like the the self stuck in a stuck in a room. Um, yeah, but it shows that there's depth, right? There's depth often the often the the perspective goes so that you can go through there and uh yeah. maybe drive deeper in um it's a hell of a hat though isn't it <laughs> it is this one i think speaks to creativity like we were talking about like there's yeah. so much depth and there's the illusion of life and the the illusion of us being trapped going towards the light and focusing on on i think that's what that dot represents is like the intense focus of and, and then to pan back out and realize that you're yeah. just in this brick room of consciousness. Yeah, but the the perspective there is really kind of interesting, though, isn't it? It though? is. Yeah. It really is. Huh. Especially when you look at the different walls like that. Like yeah. That, you know, it's almost like a spiral if you if you pan back a little bit. It's kind of sucking you in there. Like the, That's it's true, almost like yeah. a bottomless pit on some levels. Mm. You know, is, 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 are you looking up or are you looking down when you see right, that? Right, right. Because it depends how you feel that yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do one more here. Okay. This is a pretty awesome one, too. But let me see if I can get a bigger picture here. This one's pretty fascinating, too. This one's back to the Ouroboros as well, it seems like. Yeah. This guy's got his sword in there as if he can claim his fate, but he's destined to repeat it. On some yeah, level. he's trying to escape it. Yeah, I like that. It's so fascinating to yeah. me, right? Yeah. Yeah, Jung's red this book. book is, yeah. And it gets me I wish I could read I wish I could read it in its in its form. Yeah. Well you have the yeah. do you have the English translation? It, there is an English translation. Um I have the Yeah, yeah, I've I have um I think in I don't have the actual translation, but in in this in this actual book, this giant manuscript of a book, yeah. they give you some sort of breakdown of it. But yeah, there's a separate volume that was that's just yes. just translation of all the text. Yeah, I and it's much cheaper than the, than the book. <laughs> this one was pretty pricey, but uh, yeah, it's it's a nice one to have for a conversational piece, and if you have some free time. Just to sit down and, and try to wrap your mind around what what the human mind is capable of if you're if you're happen to be born that way, I guess. But yeah. it's a uh, it's fascinating, and I it's like the it's like the only manuscript that I really have. It's interesting mm -hmm. to think about how this how information may have been consumed. Well, you as someone who has studied the the those particular ages, what was it like? Do you think for the people that were re were reading manuscripts? Yeah, I mean, working with manuscripts to me is one of the greatest things that I'm able to do. Um, and working with medieval manuscripts when I have done is uh, is just incredible because uh, the history there is just amazing. And to think about, um, you know, the, the, the scribe writing it or the if it is something by the actual author writing it. Um, it's one of the reasons why whenever I go to, to libraries, I love to, to see those exhibits where they're showing 
manuscripts and it's one of the, the 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 things that we lament is that a lot of that seems to be gone now because everything is done on the computer um and so the handwritten manuscripts have kind of gone the way of of the dodo bird um and that's uh that's too bad because uh you know i i know when i've studied uh williams work william wordsworth's poems um you know we have the manuscript of the prelude his his autobiographical epic and it's it's such an incredible poem and I, I i love the poem to read the whole book and then to look at the manuscript and actually look at his handwriting writing this all out just to me is is there's something magical about that was there some sort of um alphabet in in like a picturesque alphabet it seems that there was some sort of codified language in manuscripts via images yeah. that we don't well, have now. well, there is. I mean, so so for the images, I mean, there is the whole field of iconography, mm. right? But in paleography, which is the the, the study of of manuscripts, um, a lot of the 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 medieval manuscripts are written in in a kind of shorthand, um, and some of the the trick of working with them is is that decoding, and it mm. can be um, really interesting. It can be incredibly frustrating. Um, there is a, a an Italian guy named Capelli. Who wrote a put together a dictionary? Um, must have been back in the 1940s or 50s. Um, I have it over on my shelf here, and um, he went through medieval manuscripts and basically compiled a dictionary that attempts to kind of give you the the, the decoding of the shorthand in these manuscripts. It doesn't work for all of them because a lot of the scribes use different things. Um, right. But you know. It, if you look at some of these authors, I mean, I mentioned Hildegard of Bingen before. I mean, Hildegard had several, uh, several of her pieces are written in a language that we don't know what it is. Um, it was a language that was apparently invented for the nuns at the at the abbey where she was that she invented, and and we've never found the cipher, so we don't know what the heck it says. Um, but apparently, the nuns understood it. So, okay, now that you say that. Like is is this just part of the journey, David? Do, do we do we create libraries? Do we create languages, and then we must forget them so that we can? Maybe we have to forget them so that we can move forward. Maybe we're trapped by the past if we don't continue to move forward the language. I think that yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it it depends on whether or not you're going to look at the language as 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 being a living language, and mm. whether you're willing to let it be malleable and and adaptive um you know i mean if you're going to be restrictive um i mean you know famously the french have their own academy that that governs language um that governs the french language to keep the the purity of the language um english has not nothing like that um and i think one of the only ways that it progresses is if it does have that adaptability um you know you look at something like um Oh, I mean, any of the the, the the dead languages. I mean, I, I deal a lot with the, the Celtic languages. And, um, you know, most of those, many of those are dead languages. Now, a dead language means that no one speaks it anymore. Right. Um, so that's the definition. Um, a language is dead if there aren't any, any speakers of it still alive and, and using the language. So, for example, Latin is considered a dead language. Um, it is still the language of obviously the Catholic Church, and the only place that actually still uses it on a daily basis basis is the Vatican. 
but it is not it is not a living language the language is that's it now sometimes that's really helpful um i mean i can remember when i studied new testament greek in graduate school i mean new testament greek which is different from classical greek and different from modern greek new testament greek is the words in greek in the greek new testament once you learn that you know new testament greek that's the language that's all there is um <clears throat> so it never changed right i mean it was what it was um aramaic you know a lot of these ancient languages are the same way um but it really is interesting because without our ability to understand them um you know we we can't understand our past i mean look at the history of the rosetta stone um, you know w without deciphering that you know we we wouldn't know our past we wouldn't understand what came before and um language is you know as we said before language is power yeah have you read have you read the bible in hebrew english and new testament greek i have read most of the old testament in biblical hebrew um, I've read the New Testament in in New Testament Greek, and and yes, gone through it in in English and read big chunks of it in Latin, medieval medieval Latin, Church Latin. Um, yeah, that's fascinating to me. Like you're the only person I know who's done that. Like that's well, so that I know you. What? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure <laughs> it's, a, it's a badge I want to want to want to wear, but yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I mean, as somebody who studies the past, I mean, you have to be conversant in in languages. You have to be able to deal with that. Um, otherwise, you can't you can't study it. You can't look at. It. I mean, it's it's like someone who wants to to uh, to study, um, you know, the novels of Gar Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but can't speak Spanish. I mean, you know, you 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 can read them in English translation, but you're not getting the the original. You're not getting the real the real thing. Um, it's like reading Proust in French, which I don't recommend to anybody. Proust in English is difficult enough, um, but you know it, it, it's it's akin to them. If you really want to read Proust, I mean, I remember in graduate school when I said to my professor, I said, "I really think I should read Proust." I'd never read him in English or French, and he, I remember he he said to me, he "said Why?" And I said, "Well, isn't it something to have done?" And he said, "Well, I've never read him," um, and I said, "Oh, you know." And so I, I read, you know some of proust I, I have not gotten through even half of it um but i've also read large chunks of it in french to see what the actual original looks like and um boy it's as difficult as, as the english translation the man loved a long sentence <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating well as we are as we're coming close to the end here what do you got coming up where can people find you and what are you excited about yeah, so my my website's David A Solomon S A L O M O N dot com. Uh, links to my blog and my books and speaking engagements and my consulting and uh, exciting things that are coming up. We are in the second week of our new semester, um, which feels like it should be spring break already, but we won't go there. Um, and uh, I've got a, a great class of students that I'm teaching in, a, in an advanced museum studies course. We're just getting ready to start doing some curating work for an exhibition that we're going to be uh, going to be putting on in April, and um, just real uh, real glad to be able to talk to you. 
Yeah, pleasure is all mine. I, I really enjoy the conversations and I enjoy learning and I, I've gotten some great feedback from some people that are also getting to tune in when they can and, and play a part. So thank you for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for participating in the chat and taking time to spend with us and hopefully getting to learn as, as we go through our own journey and try to solve the world's problems. <laughs> That's all we got for today.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.